Welcome to the Rudo Love Podcast, a playground of Eros, love, and the normalization of pleasurable acts. On today's Oo interview, where I ask juicy questions to people that move me, I have Diana P. Cartwright joining me. As an astrologer, Diana does a wonderful job of tributing to the patterns in nature that are within us and take on astrology in a really novel, I've never heard people talk like her kind of way. She mytho- She's mythologizing and sharing, and the way that she's doing that is by breaking down the patriarchal forms of reparation. She gifts her time and community support. In particular, I'm interested in the sensual and loving aspects of our lives. So we'll be paying Venus her erotic dues on this chat. But I thought I'd start with just a simple welcoming you in, Diana Picard, right? As you are known on Substack. (laughs) And taking a sensuous, grounding, deep breath with you. How's that sound? It's lovely. Mm. Welcome. I'm here. Shall we set the stage ever so slightly? If we were going to be like hanging out with Venus in this show, should we paint her environment in context first? Shall we give her some life? Give it some life? Yes. Yeah, you do this often. You help establish connection to the topic. Let's, Let's talk about the realm of Venus. Mm. And really, we're just gonna start. Um, we're just gonna start at the top of the iceberg, and then I think through our discussion, we'll just spiral deeper into the many layers. Yum! Right, because when we're thinking about archetypes, it's it's both. It's this. Po- it holds this polarity of simplicity mm. and ability for you to grasp something. Mm-hmm. But also complexity, right? It's it's encapsulating a grand idea that is usually inherently complex. Mm. So a lot of times people talk about Venus as the planet of money and love. Okay. And I might reference this later, but to me that's kind of a flat version. Yeah. Um. Not, I mean, obviously, both of those concepts, money and love, can be inherently complex, and people know that. But it really kind of just scratches the surface of all the things that Venus brings to the table. Mm-hmm. Because really, money and love, uh, or actually probably a better phrase, would be romantic or other forms of one-to-one partnership and relationship. Okay. Um, both of those things are so much about relationship, connection, right? And so it's not exclusively romantic, right? This idea of relationship between any number of things. You know, money yeah. is a is often a currency that we would pass from individual to individual, but it connects us to for example, an entire economy of people that we may never meet, Mm. right? Mm. And same with relationship, 
You know, we can never know the grand web of all the relationships that we're part of, but we can certainly imagine it, right? And we experience it through those one-to-one connections. Yeah, I like how both of those also kind of have their own rules, but then they're really both begging to be created internally. Like you have to create your own rules around them as well. I'm glad you went there because I feel like there's an ethical component to Venus. Right, right. And oftentimes Venus is not really thought of that way because when you think of money and love, right, you're thinking of a lot of people, including astrologers, you know, just kind of think of, you know, partying, frankly, spending a lot of money, (laughs) Mm. you know, sex, drugs, rock and roll, all Mm. of that. (laughs) Okay. Um, Which I'm not trying to take anything away from that, but I'm saying even all of that exists within some sort of code, Mm -hmm. right? Some sort of social code of how do relationships get formed? How are they fostered? How are they fueled? Right? Yeah. And our social systems um, create a lot of those conditions, but the relations themselves have inherent qualities, right? Sometimes which can transcend the social rules and norms, Mm. Mm. right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that I think is becoming more and more obvious. Um. Yeah, and I would say Venus is also, um, it's like, from where do those ethics come, right? Because other planets that connote ethical things tends to be more Mm rights-based or Mm law-based or intellectual, moral, religious. Whereas this is emotive. We're not talking about this. That's right. We're talking about feelings. We're talking about felt sense. So what are those vibes that you get in your body when you're around other people? Right. Right? And how does that inform how you're showing up with that person and with yourself? Oof. Right? Felt sense. That's that's kind of what's informing it. And I think the other element that's unfortunately a lot under the surface because, you know, that kind of sex, drugs, rock and roll image um, is one personification, but it's it's definitely not the only that speaks to the element of pleasure right. and play in yeah. our lives. Yeah, because they're kind of like stigmatized as void filling, whereas, you know, pleasure and the kind of embodied sense of love is, um, you know, I think of filling, nourishing, uh, unboundless. Yes, absolutely. Whereas there's always an inevitable end. You know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll lead you to Uh shriveling. Right. Like it takes more out of you than it gives back. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I think actually the other element of beauty, I'm sorry, the other element of Venus we haven't talked to yet is beauty. And I think it's similar. I think it's very similar in our society where it's all the work that people put in to trying to be an idea of what's pretty, right? Yes. Just very different than 
relating to the world as if you and everything in it is beautiful. Yes. Yeah. All three of those have the potential of being so shallow when you just use the words. Yeah. And I think we're going to dig in a little bit more about how that distortion has been created and how do we how do we find a new relationship to these aspects of ourselves? Um, and the fact that, you know, this is archetypal means, in my mind, and the fact that we're talking about, you know, uh, a lens of astrology is like, you know, Venus moves across the solar system. She touches all of the various elements of the sky that speak to different aspects of life, which we call the zodiac, mm -hmm. right? Circle of animals. She is in touch with all of those animals. And so for each of us, we have our own way that we are defining for ourselves. What is pleasurable? What is beautiful? You know, where can I express myself? Um, how can I uh, be in relationship with others. And there's no one way to do it. And there's so much beauty just inherent in that. Mm. <sighs> so I feel like you've painted the scene in ideas. But what if we were to literally paint her scene? Like yeah. her house, her temple. Yeah, and I think one of the challenging things to about that is because of what I just said around the multiplicity. In many ways, I think that our earthly landscape is really the best depiction of her temple. Oh, wow. Because she her orbit shows up in the patterns of flowers, right? Yes. Many plants on Earth and other forms in nature. Um, and folks may or may not be aware of this, but I'll mention it in case folks are, um, relate to the golden ratio, which is a mathematical configuration, concept, mm -hmm. and design. Looks like a. it's also referred to sometimes as a golden spiral, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm comes out of Fibonacci sequence. Anyway, that all relates to Venus's cycle and the mathematical relationships of her to the sun, to the earth. So when I think about Venus's realm, I think about this landscape that we are part of on this planet. You know, rainforests and, you know, vast uh, tundra and you know, arid deserts and, you know, just any landscape that you can imagine that is rich with beauty mm -hmm. and with pleasure, with sensual experience. Mm. And the gift of that is we don't need to go somewhere to relate to her, you know. <laughs> she's here and she's present with us all the time. Uh, okay, I got everything I wanted out of this moment. We can end the show now. Bye. <laughs> I feel so fulfilled. Uh. So one thing that you talk about that I love, thank you so far for what you said. Sure. Yeah. One thing that I love that you've mentioned is that desire comes uh, from the phrase desidera, desidera, uh -huh. 
which means from the stars. Yes. Implying that the stars are intricately tied to the deepest, most intimate wishes of our heart. Um, when we talk about the stars being tied to our human journey, <laughs> for some people, that's going to feel like pulling at two disparate things that don't necessarily need to be tied together. Oh. You know, what would you say to that kind of response, so to speak, of like, well, you're just trying to put two things together that don't need to. Interesting. Meaning people don't feel that the relationship of the stars is present in their lives. Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah, and usually with that, I would say two things. I would say the first one, I go back to the Venusian way, and I say, do you not enjoy a sunny day? And mm. do you not revel at the beauty of a full moon? Mm. These are basic experiences of what it means to be human. And we've had that relationship to the luminaries since before we were human. I mean, that is just in us. We can't argue with that. Mm. And there's that beautiful phrase, as above, so below. Yes, and I think sometimes people find that to be very abstract. Um, I think also what people miss about that phrase is that it doesn't only mean... Like, I'm not personally of the belief that the movements of the planets are determining our fates here on planet Earth. Good point. I want to be very clear that that is not my belief. Here, here. Okay? Because I think what's often missing is that the as above, so below means there's a reciprocal relationship there. Again, back to relationship, the Venus piece. Right? Yeah. It, it's that the cosmos is both in us and we are in it. Yeah. It is a fabric that we are part of and never distant from. I'm glad you said that. And so then the second thing I would say is, and I do feel that people can tap into the felt sense of that based on what I was just saying about the luminaries. The second piece I would say is there's a lot of ways that astrology informs our life, that, that the movements of the stars inform our life in a very cloaked or veiled way. Mm -hmm. And some of that might be intentional, to be honest, and some of it is just the way that culture has evolved. You know, we, we become more and more detached from nature, whether that's, the you know, the forests and the rivers I was referencing earlier or the stars, because we live in large cities and there's light pollution and we can't even see the stars. I mean, so many ways that we've become distant from nature mm -hmm. doesn't mean we're not still part of it. But it does mean that I think oftentimes we take for granted that relationship. Mm -hmm. And the archetypes that are part of the way we understand our solar system through the planets, um, are are so deeply embedded in our culture, but we don't even see it because it's just the water that we're swimming in every day. You know, the days of the week were named after 
the same gods that the planets were named after. Yeah. Seven days of the week, seven planetary bodies that we're tracking. You actually bring up, a, you bring up a good point around the kind of naming schema. You know, we're talking about Venus, which is like a Hellenistic phrase, but like prior to that, right. like Venus would have shown up in so many different ways because she is so visual. She's so... Um, and I, I apologize for using such a gendered <laughs> terminology. I'm like, you know, um, recognizing that I'm gendering Venus uh, and this planet. Um, but this planet would have been visible well and truly before the Romans and the Greeks. Yes. The ancient, um, the most ancient cultures that we have still history of um, without a doubt, are not only aware of Venus, but she is playing a critical role in how they understand themselves as a civilization. Yeah. Yeah. Culture, not, especially, you know, ocean migrating cultures following the transit of Venus to get to the Pacific Islands, for example. There is a lot of history here, and I don't want to bore people, so I'm not going to go into a lot of history. But what I would like to do is is talk about some of the other names, right? Oh, yeah. Because yeah. Venus is um, a Roman goddess. I'm glad you mentioned the thing about gendering. Mostly I gender her because she's the only planet that was named after a goddess. And so I just kind of want to honor that somehow the feminine has remained in our cultural vocabulary in a very limited way, but is still there. And so yeah. that's why I personally- that ratio her. is so telling. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, but the Greek goddess was Aphrodite. Um, and, and I'll just mention here briefly, um, Aphrodite and Ares- who were the Greek gods um, who gave birth to their son Eros. And that's mm. from where we get, you know, what you were saying at, at the introduction, our, our concept of Eros, Eros and the erotic yeah. and how it functions in our life. And Eros is strife, right? Yeah, Eros's um, Roman name is Mars. So mm. it's planet Mars. Mm. Yeah, so those two planets work in conjunction. There's a lot there around the Mars and Venus cycles mm -hmm. and how they connect and relate. Yeah, because um, often women are kind of subjugated to being dark and terrible. And like it's like the other side of the coin of the woman that death is there. You know, we have birth and death. We can talk about that. Let's, let's circle back <laughs> to that because there's a lot to unpack there. But actually... You know, we are we actually are going to kind of get there because as I talk about these other forms of Venus, that's actually part of the history. Yeah. Um, so the Egyptian goddesses and other goddesses that were kind of pre-Greek and Roman mm -hmm. and not necessarily even goddesses. Um, so the Mayan Quetzalcoatl and I always, I never can do this name justice, Tets. Katipoka, mm. the twins. Tricky, yeah. I wouldn't have been able to do any better than that. My apologies. 
those twins and also represent like kind of this dual element that was present in the goddess imagery and archetype. Mm -hmm. You know, many goddesses from like, again, pre-Greek and Roman times were goddesses of war and goddesses of love and beauty. Mm -hmm. And what happened is over time, the warrior aspect of the goddess was basically demonized. Yeah. And suppressed. And the more beauty and sex-oriented yeah. aspects of the goddess were... Well, it's interesting. Like, Well, we can be straight up about that. The were perpetuated, but were also... Uh, We're also not truly honored in the complexity of what they are, which is kind of mm -hmm. what we were talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that the Romans and the ancient Greeks were, were, are known as not being big fans of women, <laughs> not seeing them as, as equal to, to the male and in any way and having really truly just one purpose. And I feel like that's, for me, um, having a mother who's kind of historic prowess sits within like the 18th and 19th centuries. Like that's the precursor to the cult of domesticity. This sense of like um, sexuality sure. is regulated to um, just being, you know, having the parts for birth. Well, we're also talking about a time in which patriarchy really took root. Word. And so then it was, there were so many layers around how that then informs economical concepts of relationship, right? Like the man is going to own the property. So then what does that mean for the woman? Well, she has to have sons that he can pass that property down to, and they have to have a family unit so that he knows who his sons are, right? Yeah. So there has to be like monogamy or at least a pretense of that. So yeah, that's all happening um, with the change of how we are thinking about feminine archetypes and how they operate in our lives. Mm. So in the modern era, you know, we've been cut off from a lot of this history and, and, and therefore I would argue to aspects of ourselves. Yes. Yes, Absolutely. Um, and it mirrors exactly what you were saying around not even knowing that we're taking nature for granted, like <laughs> having access to shade and grass and running water and forests and just that sense of peace to like not, right, because in the not hear any sounds. It's property. It's not land. Mm. Yeah. And let's be clear, the only reparation for land is land. Land back. <laughs> Hashtag land back. <laughs> but that's a whole, that's a lot to unpack there around. But but so relevant to yeah. everything we're talking about in terms of relational ethics. And, you know, I would say, I would argue that a lot of ancient cultures had very different relational ethics than we do, at least here in the Western world mm. today. Mm. And that's why 
they had very different experiences of their landscapes. Yeah. They weren't worried about the natural disasters and the climate change that we're worried about today because they were living off of the land in a very sustainable, reciprocal way. Yeah. And honoring, you know, honoring right relations. And not necessarily because of strict law, right? But because of a connection, right? A deep felt connection to the land and to each other. This is me and I am this. Mm. Yep. I'm pretty sure I just wrote you a letter that says, I love you. I am you. You are me. Yeah. <laughs> so you said, you know, before I created rabbit hole after rabbit hole on you, you were opening up by talking about um, Venus's sort of what surface level attributes or, or domains being that of money and love. Yes. And when we talk about love, this is kind of what we are going to be digging into within the the House of the Rudo Love podcast. It's um, understanding that love is so multifaceted and so crucial and so the answer and so the driver. (laughs) Um, And we'll kind of dip into the erotic because it's my show and I'm obsessed with the erotic. So we're going to go there. And I love one of the questions that you posed for our time to chat about the astrology of Venus in relation to this. So Venus is a lot more of than just those things that I mentioned. And I'm saying just, um, okay. there's a lot within love and money, but um, Venus is also associated with the arts and okay. relation. You were talking, you, you, you kind of clarified that like the thing that money and love have in common is like our relation to it. Um, but um, creative arts, uh-huh. that's very, very cool to me that um, my name means love. Um, I have no choice but to be an artist because that's how I see the world. And that's what brings uh-huh. me pleasure to make art. Like yeah. there is, I find this to be a very interesting moment to like gather around the spirit of artistry, the spirit of creation and the spirit of the, I mean, even in the, in the body, kind of like the, the house or energy zone of both of those things are the same kind of system, right? In the spot in the body. Yeah. It's a really interesting thing because I think a lot of people think that Venus has a connection to the arts because of her connection to beauty and aesthetics. Yeah. But i But I agree with you. I think it actually has more to do with the element of pleasure Mm -hmm. and embodied experience, Mm -hmm. right? Because oftentimes I feel so, I feel so centered and so in my body when I'm dancing, when I'm singing, when I'm, you know, painting, you know, like those are really embodied experiences, And writing. Let's not forget writing. I'm a writer. So I feel that it's it's different because there's kind of a mercurial element with writing as well. So I would say, you know, Venus is more associated with um, the visual arts, 
and I would say probably music. She, she tends to be more and then, connected to those specific strands of arts. Music painting. But really, yeah, I mean, really any experience that you're having, though, of that play and that relationship, right? Like if you're doing theater, I mean, that's all about relationship, right? Yeah. yeah. So I think there's so many ways in which you're touching into this ancient form. I won't say tradition, but I will say ancient form of relating to ourselves and to one another. Mm-hmm. And I, we we are like peeling back a million layer onion right now. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to name maybe some of the other names for Venus before I forget. Because oh I yes, if people want to expand their imagination, right outside of the Western world, which is just like, hey, it's sex and money, right? Because that's what makes the world go around in the Western economy. Um. These other archetypes, I think, have really interesting myths and stories that could help you see the goddess through other lenses. And I'll drop this into the show notes. Even if you are viewing from a Western eye, I still think you can get glimpses of that. So um, Freya is the North Norse goddess, and that's um, actually the goddess that has um, given us Friday. the Friday, Friday day of the week. Um the West African um, Oshun mm-hmm. of the Orishas, um, the Mesopotamian Inanna, the East Indian Shukru, and I, I've already mentioned the Mayan. Um, so these are all like very disparate parts of the globe yeah, that have developed myths around this feminine energy, right? That we all feel and experience, regardless of gender. Yeah. I'll drop in some more as well. In the notes. In the show notes. Juicy, juicy. So, yeah, let's go back to what you were beginning to talk about with... Let's go deeper into the the iceberg. Yeah, the first question is if we're returning to the top of the iceberg with Venus and seeing that as an astrological perspective, uh-huh. what does this teach us about the erotic? Yeah, um, a little qualifier first, and that is that astrology is not a monolith. There are many strands in astrology. There are many systems, and I would say there are many just different types of astrologers. So I'm going to speak and have been speaking from my own experience and relationship, which is a reflection, of course, of my life as well as my studies of astrology. Um, I don't pretend, all that to say, I don't pretend to be objective on this, but I do feel like what I've been learning and peeling back about this has been so um, helpful for me in multiple lenses, like both thinking about in my own personal life, but also in thinking about the role that these themes we've just talked about play in the larger social sphere, as we've kind of already alluded to, like, right, you know, climate change and colonialism and patriarchy. It's like, how do all these things connect? Um, Objective with context. <laughs> yes. Yes. 
Um, so I'd mentioned earlier how Eros, the Greek, um, the Greek character Eros, um, is the son of basically Mars and Venus. And Mars and Venus are kind of, you know, in this complementariness, um, which I think has been described well as Venus is the one who kind of has the desire, and Mars is is the one that kind of goes out and gets it. Mm. Right. Nice. Venus is another way of talking about it. Is Venus is the beingness. And Mars is the doingness. Ooh, or receiving or giving. Right? Ooh, I like so it. So we, we have a lot of kind of, it's, it's yin-yang. Mm-hmm. It's yin-yang, right? And it's all there encapsulated in the, in what we think of as. Um, Sorry, I'm also going to say it. it. It's also BDSM. <laughs> sure. <laughs> It's incredibly delicious for me because I'm kind of entering into my journey with that. So had to had to shout out. Well, I think that speaks well, actually, to what it means for when we really can connect with and honor our own relationship to these archetypes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because ideally, um we are experiencing through that a sense of like sacred sovereignty. Mm, what a great phrase. Right? Like I know um, Dan Savage talks about like erotic autonomy. Yes. Right? It's like having a sense of what we're about. Yeah. Um, I think it also says so much about you know, hopefully we're moving into a more consent-based, you know, norm socially. And I think we only get there, really, if we have that sacred sovereignty. Like, we need enthusiastic yes and no, right? And Venus would really be the yes, but also the no to some degree. But Mars is often the no, the boundaries and the limits. Yeah, and... You've talked about Mars and Venus being in a marriage before when you've <laughs> talked about, you know, both their like literal position in, in the moment in the sky, but also, as you say, within the story, within the context of the story. Yes, there is a lot to talk about in terms of like their movements in the sky. Um, I'm not going to go too much into that because I think the archetypes are just easier to relate to. Mm -hmm. um, but there is a whole story about these planets' movements through the sky and what that actually indicates. And that's from which these myths come. So I do, I'm glad you mentioned that because I do feel like it's important that people understand that this isn't just some grand invention. Like this is cultural evolution of, mm. of ancient cultures tracking movements of the planets mm. and out of that creating meaning for themselves mm. through story. Oh, and great. that's from where these archetypes have been established. And it's why we talked about kind of history and how they can change over time, right? Mm. Um, and I, yeah, feel, I, I feel so happy that we're doing this um, and weaving, kind of going back in time and then in the present moment and then going back and then kind of, you know, it's, it's nonlinear in our conversation, but the 
the thing that I'm really grateful about is that we're, we're accumulation of these things. And by you and I and a few others um, taking time to be with each other to track Venus's path um, within her cycle, her the the act of doing that allows us to reinterpret, to tack on new stories, to reframe, to reimagine. These are really, really important and, and wonderful, joyous things to be not just part of an ancient sect yep. of storytellers and embodiers, but also to be making our new stories. Yes. And we're not burning it down. We're not burning the past down. We are building atop and with. I think, you know, what we were saying earlier about the arts, I, I've personally always felt that the arts are a representation of society and cultural's evolution and movement, mm. right? But some people might not connect to the arts. Um, and I would just say, generally speaking, just thinking about creativity, you know, and how it operates in our lives. You know, we're creating our lives. We're creating yeah. our stories. Yeah. And I think the benefit of having a relationship to an archetype, to a planet, um, to ourselves, ultimately, because Venus just calls us back to ourselves again and again and again. Mm. Um. The benefit of that is that we're more conscious of the stories we're creating. Ooh. And it's so easy for us to just go autopilot and play out the stories that have been given to us. Right? And that's kind of why we're also referencing all these stories that have been given to us, right? Because we want to actually look at those and critically investigate them. Mm. Um, and then we get to create out of that mm. for ourselves. And I don't know um, about you, dear listener, but I know that the last couple of years for me has very much been a realization that it's not just about me. It's about all of us. And I don't do anything in isolation. I'm changing things, but things are changing me. And that means that I'm intricately woven within a web of well-being that's greater than just my own. And my stories aren't just mine. Yes, because for us to get to that sacred sovereign after living in these oppressive systems, social systems, economic systems, um, we have to reclaim our desire, including our desire for liberation together, our shared mm -hmm. liberation. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Food for thought. Next it's question. Really, yeah, please. <laughs> what can us listeners do to develop an embodied relationship with the planets, particularly Venus? Question mark. Yes. I'm happy to go into that, but I want to talk a little bit more, actually. Can we can we unpack a little bit more? about that that thing that we just started to touch into around, around. yes 
I just think it's so critical and I don't want to pass it over. Ooh, I love it. I love it. Yes. It is really critical because it, it's, it goes back to the relational ethics we were talking about. But honestly, it goes back to how are we understanding the erotic in today's world? Nice. Cool. Within this within this system that, as we were referencing before, our culture has kind of defined in a limited way for us, like mm-hmm. what lanes we have to be in, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I personally really love Audre Lorde's discussion of the erotic because I feel like through that essay she wrote, she really describes in great detail how we got to where we are And I think she also speaks to, you know, kind of what we've been talking about this whole time, which is how the breakdown has happened. Because she talks about how the erotic is a bridge between spiritual and political life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And she talks about without that bridge, it's flat. That's what we were talking about earlier with Venus kind of being just like, glossed up or shriveled down or however we want to think about, you know, I always think about the statue where her arms are cut off. (laughs) Literally, her arms are cut off. (laughs) You know, it's like that bridge was has been broken, right? And and we are so in need right now of that bridge to come back and help us find that relationship between the spiritual and the political. And I do feel like astrology is such an incredible tool to build that bridge because it is spiritual. It's connecting us to something that's greater than ourselves, right? Yeah. yeah. Or the greatest parts of ourselves, if we want yes. to phrase it that way. Yes. Kind of unearth- right? unearthing ourselves. Yes. And And it's a it's a it's a narrative that unfolds over time. So we've been talking all this time about like politics, right? About how how we relate and govern, right? At that mm-hmm. level, like mm-hmm. how government is created, mm-hmm. right? And whether it's you know sovereignty, right, which we keep coming back to, or whether it's authority, right? Like how is government? you know, how do we relate to each other on a political level? And of course, you know, we know from, uh, we know this phrase, you know, the personal is the political from feminism. And a lot of people have talked about how astrology is actually more of a calendar. It's just like a huge calendar that's way bigger than one year, right? Because we can go back and we can track what was happening in the skies when feminism in the Western world like really took off, right? And we can see like themes around like how the planets were in relationship to one another and how that was beginning to tell a story of how our culture was shifting. That's very cool. Yeah. So I personally feel like it's such, it can be a this very illuminating tool because it it does help us build that bridge through this embodied, you know, experience and connection to ourselves and also through illuminating, like, what are the stories that we're operating in and how is that 
describing how we want to be in relation to each other at a larger scale of government. Yeah. yeah. So why did you bring up Audrey Lord right then? Like, what is it that is part of the kind of continuation or the unpacking? And we've we've talked about the kind of culmination of kind of Adrian Renee, Renee Brown um, and Sonia Renee Taylor kind of being the continuation of that of that conversation, so to speak. But what was it about yes. this moment that you wanted to mention that for? Two things. One was we were starting to talk about the relationship between our own desires and the social structures we're in. And mm. I just wanted to be really explicit. Gotcha. And it was important to me that we did that before we go into the practice piece. Cool. Because Good. it would be very easy for us to say, from a Western conditioning, give me the list. I'm going to go through it. I'll make it happen on my time in my way. And if it's working for me, cool. And that's really not what Venus is about. It's about relationship, which is what we keep talking about. Mm-hmm. It's about understanding how we are in relationship with others. Doing so things some of the practices, Yes. So some of the practices, yes, we can do on our own. But it's so much richer and more joyful if that's not the case. Hell yeah. When we create that bridge between spiritual life and political life, so much joy gets unlocked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's what Audre Lorde was speaking to. I think that's what Adrienne Marie Brown is speaking to through her pleasure activism work, right? It's how do we create joy, right? That helps us reconnect with one another. Yeah. And create relations that are, That, that do honor that sacred sovereignty because the reality is that's going to be at risk as long as we're in societies where we're not building that bridge. Mm. Does that make sense? It does. And I like how um, the word deep relationships kind of, or like deep joy kind of gets us even further into the core of us, the core of the earth. Like yes. Audre Lorde describes the erotic as the physical, emotional, and psychic expressions of what is deepest, strongest, and richest. Mm. I honestly can't think of a better definition of what it means to be connected to the Venusian archetype. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And everything we've been, so we're moving deeper into that iceberg and talking I think more about what is underneath because all these other things that ho are how it can manifest and show up but as I was saying earlier it shows up different for everyone and that's the sovereignty part of it too is like we all get to find our way into that and what matters is that we are honoring right what's true for us what's truest for us what's deepest what's strongest and what's richest for us and how, how can we do that in a way that actually creates more life for more people? Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. If I think about the kind of really cool new methodology of relating to each other, it's not the golden rule as we knew it, do unto others as you would do, have done unto you. It's like, no, do what you know that other loves. Uh, you know, so I know that I'm not going to try to do exactly to you what I would do to myself, <laughs> Diana Picard, right? I would be knowing what, you know, having spent deep and meaningful time with you would allow me to deduce and intuit the best way to love you. Yeah, this gets at another thing that R.G. Laura was talking about, which is how oftentimes eroticism is equated with pornography. Mm-hmm. And she talks about how like, you couldn't be more wrong with that because mm -hmm. what happens is pornography and, and, and that's, you know, a symbol of how we have come to relate to each other as objects mm. of desire. Mm. And the difference is sharing joy. The difference is what Bio Kumalafe calls interbeing. Hmm. And to be quite honest, I think a lot of us are longing for that, truly. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I feel so deeply charged when I feel my connectedness to others and to myself. But that that connectedness is so important to me and, and important like the minute I wake up to even in my dream time that's like an opportunity for connectedness as well yeah it's it's with us always ever yeah <laughs> and to relegate it it's the same way as to relegate the goddess to virginal mother or whore is to strip her of all of the variety and complexity and beauty and just endless possibility, mm. right? And it's that, you know, and again, these are archetypes, but I think we do internalize that and we do that to ourselves, you know, and we we put ourselves into situations where there's binaries or there's you know guardrails or um pressure to be only one of those things to find a definition to mm. label ourselves to, mm. to compartmentalize to limit our experiences with one you know piece or another to i think the compartmentalization is a huge aspect of how people relate to the erotic mm-hmm mm-hmm and to Venus, right? Because I'm kind of just like connecting those. Yeah, no, thank you for that. Right? It's love or money. And it's like, okay, well, that's everything, right? <laughs> what, do we have? what do we have? You know, we have stuff we bought with money. We yeah. have food we bought with money. Yeah. We have people we love. Like, that's everything. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think Ursula Le Guin was the first kind of person outside of my own, like, actual upbringing to really teach me about exchange that like all of those things like to live is to be in exchange with balance. Uh, that's beautiful. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and that's what you're talking about as well. It is everything. Love is exchange. Money is exchange. And inherently is about balance. Yeah, it, um, that's, that speaks to another principle in astrology that I think is important. And that is that basically these archetypes, which are represented by movements through the sky, are polarities. So when you see a full moon, what you're seeing is a moon on one side of the sky and sun on the other side, shining on that moon fully, right? That's like a direct experience we can have of that polarity. Um, And they're happening all the time with bodies we might not be aware of or or might not be visible to us even. Um, And it's those polarities that I think create that balance that you're speaking to. King love that <laughs> man I mean we really did give it up to flow when when we hit record <laughs> well I hope actually what we've been doing is demonstrating some of what your question was mm-hmm. which is like what can people do like I would rather demonstrate but I'm also happy to say like specifically like you're right. We have been in the flow. We've been, in, I think we've been in the inner being, right? This isn't a transaction. This isn't a question, answer, question, answer, what? This is a, that that's what we mean by the flow, right? Like we're, we're commuting. Yeah. <laughs> we're commuting with each other. I know. As like a interviewer, interviewee, we should be like, did I answer that? Okay. <laughs> and I think we're honoring each other's like yeses and nos. Yeah. <laughs> Right? <laughs> I like that you're getting meta with me. Thank you. <laughs> and we're, we're, uh, this is important though, I think, for people to like, cause so I think often that does happen and people don't key into it. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I think it's good to like make it explicit. I think we're also being present to what is emerging mm. rather than feeling like we have to follow a script. Mm-hmm. Right? It's like we're present yeah. with each other. It's like what a little seedling does when it cracks from the soil. It senses the sun. It's being fed by all of these subterranean nourishments. And as it gets bigger, maybe it's fed by the other plants that it's around. Yes. Responding to light and shade and temperature. And that is creation, right? Like that's. That, to me, is what the act of co-creation is. Because if I come in and I have a script, and I mean metaphorically, I don't, it doesn't mean like literally in this conversation. Mm-hmm. If I come in and I have a script, then it's about negotiating whether I'm going to get my script or not, mm-hmm. right? And how well you're going to follow it, right? Mm-hmm. And that's, that can work in some contexts. That is actually probably an expression of co-creation, right? That negotiation doesn't have to look like a negotiation. And like probably what people are thinking of when I'm using that word, which is like a little bit of a battle. That's the margin element. Like we're talking about Mars. Mm -hmm. That's a little bit more of the margin element. And that's why I really want to emphasize the Venusian element, which is 
Which looks is, more like a dance. Yes. Because dances have movements. Yes. And there's play and there's imagination. Yeah. And there's a willingness to be with what comes. Yeah. <sighs> Juicy. <laughs> yeah. Um, quickly, while I've got it in my head, I was thinking dance. And then, you know, thinking of routines and how mm. even the most skilled dancers who have practiced a routine a million times, each iteration or each moment of that, you know, that final thing where you're showing it to the audience and it's being recorded or whatever, every time it feels and looks slightly different because it's of that particular moment that can never be ever again. And then I thought about immediately, well, the authenticity of um, the, the sexual acts that we do, they can be repetitive and similar, but every single moment that they that happens within that um, kind of lovegasm chamber is going to be very, very different if you are paying attention, if you are responding authentically to that moment that is different than the rest. You might have your moves, but they will be different every single time. And that's also interestingly, like the kind of lie around pornography is that it's always going to look this way. And if I do that, then this happens. Uh -huh. That good sex is just like anything else. It's about paying attention and responding and receiving and not trying to act out that pre-negotiated, although negotiations are important for some things, um, uh -huh. script. And I think to do that, whether whether it's dancing or sex or something else, you do have to connect to your body. So that's the other practice. <laughs> that's the Venusian way. Can we just like, I'm going to get yeah. biogra biographical for a minute. The, the lesson of the last few, um, I don't know how many months it's been that, since you've been guiding us in Venus portals is coming home to your body is coming home to earth is coming home to Venus is coming home to the universe that is within you and without that coming in, going in, dropping in. Yes. Rooting down. <laughs> it's another rooting down. Mm. Right. We talked about the earth. Mm. And also I'll just say looking up. You know, when I think about astrological practice, number one, okay, number one is relationship to the living sky. It's not looking at charts. It's not looking at apps. It's relationship to the living sky. And yeah. it's okay if you don't know the planets. You don't, you don't have to have any skill to go out and just observe the moon in the stage that it's in at night. Yeah. Or go out and just feel the sun's rays on your skin. Yeah. And delight in that for a moment, you know? Totally. And and wondering around the elements of energy and how that shifts um, throughout, you know, cycles that we can track because we're, we're tracking cycles intentionally right now together. Uh, you and a few others are 
collectively gathering to talk about uh, the cyclical nature of a really important planet, but also we're, we're never just talking about Venus in isolation. It's Venus in relation. Yeah, because that's her jam. That's her jam. <laughs> but for me, my constant connection when I look out into the sky, because I live in the Southern Hemisphere, which is also like a really fun thing to be aware of. And I really, I'm very appreciative of you always making sure that there's an opportunity for, because I go online and there's just so often just information about the Northern Hemisphere. But um, for me, my favorite connection is the the Southern Cross this beautiful cluster of stars that makes this gorgeous kind of cross or anchor shape in the sky. And I, it's the first thing that I look for. It's like my home base, you know, aside mm. from the moon. <laughs> Obviously, La Luna is like my favorite thing in the sky. But after that, it's, uh, you know, I'm like, what, what's the next shiniest thing in the sky? Sometimes it's Venus. Yeah. Recently, it's been Jupiter. Um. I don't know what actually is currently the second shiniest thing besides the moon. It's usually Venus, right? Venus is really pretty bright right now. Um, Mars is pretty bright too. And Jupiter is honestly usually the easiest one to find because he's the biggest. Right. And so he usually just shines the brightest and is the easiest one to spot. Um, if you kind of know where he is. Mm. Saturn, I can usually spy Saturn as well. Oh, cool. Mercury is somewhat elusive. Ooh. Because Mercury is usually pretty close to the sun. Good point. Which means when the sun is up, can't really see Mercury because the sun's rays are blocking out the visibility. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, when the sun's way on the other side of the globe, then you can't see Mercury. So he's a little more elusive. But um, right now, you've got a pretty good chance, actually, of seeing most of the visible planets. Yes. Because of their positions in the sky. Oh, I'm going to go out. Um, it's been cloudy the last few days, so I haven't felt inspired to go out lately, but I will go out. Yeah, we should say Venus is now in the evening star portion of her cycle. So if you want to see Venus, usually you can see her in the southwest sky after sunset, but usually only for very long. She's not super low in, like she's not super close to the horizon, but she's not super high either. She's kind of mid-range, lower mid-range, because um, she's slowly making her journey up to her highest point in the sky and she's she's pretty low it can and that journey she's pretty low mm. what else what else are we going to talk about Let's talk about, okay, so the final practice I would say is, and let's get down now to like the very bottom of the, I think, the very bottom of the iceberg. Mm. Because everything we've been talking about in terms of um, that sovereign yes and no, that deep, strong, rich feelings, right? Like these things 
how we relate to others, like all these things are really expressions of our values. Mm-hmm. Yeah, values is a very interesting concept. So if people have not done values work, I would mm-hmm. highly suggest that. Meaning, look at where you spend your time. Look like a mathematician or a scientist at how you spend your time and how you spend your money because those are the most limited resources. Um, You can also look at who do you spend the most time with. That's another resource you can put on the table. Um, I very much suggest looking at at values through the resource lens um, because I think it's very easy for us to tell ourselves a story about what we think our values are. And when we look at actually how we are using our resources, that tells us what our values actually are. That feels edgy. That feels really interesting, given that we're also in an era of like utter brain candy distraction. Uh-huh. That's a tricky one to look at. Yep, I think it's a real challenge. You're right. The time piece is a real challenge these days. I mean, some days I can't even track any of it, not because I'm in flow, but because I'm so distracted. Yep, I get that. And and what that is speaking to is what we were talking about around presence and what it means to have things emerge from that presence. Mm. So maybe you're noticing I'm spending... X amount of time just getting distracted on social media. Mm. And then you look at the big picture of your life and how your time is scattered across all these things. And you're realizing, wow, I'm spending a lot of time not present with myself. And I would really encourage when you look at this to just notice, just like you would notice the movement or you would notice the moon looks like a smile or you would notice colors in the sunset. You wouldn't notice that with judgment. You would notice that with like awe, curiosity, right? Yeah. To approach this gently. Yeah. Yeah. Shame can be a really nasty backseat driver, as Brene Brown would say. It's a whole other thing we can unpack because it's a big part of the, I think, that's downright, that is downright there in the bottom of that iceberg with values. Is what you were just talking about, right? Because we've been talking about oppression. And let's just say, like, when we're talking about Venus, it's internalized oppression, mm-hmm. right? Because it has to do with how we relate to ourselves. Mm-hmm. It's also, you know, one to one, how that shows up in our interpersonal relationships. But um, I do think it makes sense to maybe talk a little bit about Pluto's relationship to Venus. Cool. Yeah, I think it does too. Okay, so let's go there. So Pluto is not a visible planet. In fact, Pluto is considered not to be a planet anymore. I'm not Mm going to go into that. I'm just going to say for a long time, Pluto was considered a planet. um, That's kind of at the farthest reaches of our solar system. Um, What I find fascinating about some of the things about astrology that really for me like started to move the dial or from skepticism to 
greater curiosity, greater and greater curiosity, was learning how the discovery of planets often coincides with some sort of cultural discovery. And when Pluto was discovered, it was about the same time that Jung and Freud were coming to the world and saying, guess what? There's a whole other realm of human life that we don't even think about, and it informs a lot of what we're doing. The unconscious. That's right. So that's what we're talking about when we talk about shadow land and shame and projection and all these things that are unprocessed material, right? Unprocessed material. And larger than us, bigger than us. You know, Young, by the way, was what said at some point in time, if he could have started over, he would have just studied astrology. <laughs> because he was so about collective archetypes, collective unconscious, right? And kind of breaking <laughs> out of Freud's model of like, you know, individual neurosis. Right. To think Armchair about, psychology. Yeah. To really think about, no, what are those energies that are operating in our lives that are bigger than us, right? So, so Pluto is like not just our own personal unconscious material. It's all the unconscious material of our of our culture, of us as humans. It's a vast, vast territory. Yeah. And Neptune's back there too, right? You know, the dream, the dream space, the multi-generational dream space. I want to stick with Pluto for a minute. Sure, sure, sure. Pluto, Pluto has a really interesting relationship with, with Venus. Yeah. yeah. I find it fascinating. So Pluto takes 250 years to complete his orbit or her orbit, if we wanted to, to gender Pluto as her. Uh, let's do that. Let, let's, let's refer to Pluto as a her. And is I there a reason of, for that? Um, there is, because Pluto is associated with parts of the Zodiac that are considered to be more yin. Cool. Um, specifically the sign of Scorpio. And I mentioned earlier Anana, which is a Mesopotamian myth mm -hmm. um, that connects to that culture's understanding of the movements of Venus and like what that means for um, for stories and for how people navigate their lives, mm -hmm. right? And in that particular myth, um, which is considered to be like the oldest, you know, on record uh, myth that relates to a goddess, but also is considered to be the myth for Venus. Mm -hmm. um, astrologically. Astrologers look to that myth. So, and in that specific myth, Anana um, goes down to visit her sister, Ereshkigal, mm -hmm. in the mm -hmm. underworld. Okay. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about that journey first, because I will say that in the living sky, we observe this movement as Venus being visible in, a, in the morning sky, 
and moving down and down and down towards the horizon as the months pass. Venus gets lower and lower to the horizon and then passes from our sight. And then reemerges in the evening as an evening star, so to speak, and is then visible moving upward and gets higher and higher in the sky as the months pass on. Mm. Like a gorgeous infinity symbol. And so in the anonymous, that time when Venus is not visible, is con she's considered to be in her underworld phase. Mm. Right? And Pluto is the name for the underworld god. Mm -hmm. Right? Ereshkigal is another name for an underworld goddess. Mm -hmm. So we could refer to Pluto as a her. Love it. But that's one example of a relationship between archetypally, right? Venus and Pluto. Um, there is a there is a grand there is a more solar view again, solar system view of their relationship. So I was describing how Pluto has 250 years to go around in the orbit. In that same 250 years, Venus makes a number of revolutions around the sun that causes her point, this is difficult to describe, but I'm trying, that causes the point where she connects with the sun and the earth simultaneously, right? Mm -hmm. Like they're lined up. That point, which is called a star point, that point moves um, around... To, to a whole, around a full revolution to a new point mm -hmm. within that same 250 years. And that's what looks like the... Might seem obvious to some people, but honestly, that doesn't really even get talked about among astrologers, like hardly at all. And I find it fascinating because most of the planets don't really have even numbers like that. You know, Uranus, it's 84-year orbit. Um, Jupiter, it's 12 years. You know, it's it's like these numbers that don't really line up very often in that, like, in a synchronicity together. And Venus and Pluto do. They have some sort of rhythm where they are kind of synced. It's over a very long time period, though, which speaks to kind of that larger story of our collective unconscious and what's playing out over multiple lifetimes. Right. So we experience Venus in our own lifetime and that story plays out in terms of, you know, our own cycles of, you know, the little cycle would be about uh, 1.8 years. The next cycle out would be about eight years. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so we can mark like these eight year Benusian chapters if we want. So we experience that at this scale, but at this much larger scale, beyond our own lifetime is mm -hmm. a story that's also syncing up. I just find that so awe-inspiring. Mm -hmm. And it speaks, again, back to that bridge, that bridge between the political and spiritual. Yeah. If I think about like early mathematicians or early um, thinkers kind of finding the patterns that describe the golden ratio, finding the Fibonacci sequence, um, seeing our scale in comparison to all of these other things, like the the absolute fucking joy that that would have like 
like, can you imagine being, you know, like I can imagine the first time that I like really, truly got fractals or really got the golden ratio. I was just like, oh, thank you. Like it restored some part of me. It was great. Right. Like there's some sort of order in Mm -hmm. this beauty Mm -hmm. and in this madness. The puzzle piece just clicks right in. And it's the beauty and the madness. You know, because sure. Pluto is, is often described as um, chaos. Ordeals. Yes. Right. Right. Yeah. It, Rebellion. It's a, mystery, it's a mystery, shadowy realm. Mm. So two other things. Venus, one of Venus's home places. Um, so she has two home places in the Zodiac, Taurus and Libra. Um, the Libra space, remember I was talking about polarities. So the mm-hmm. Libra space is a polarity to Mars's Aries space. So we talked about, you know, relationship between Venus and Mars. Like um, contrasting colors. Yes. Complementary. Yes. That's, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, and in her Taurus space, she is opposite the Pluto space of Scorpio. Yeah. Which is a whole other polarity. Yeah. Which I think is just so beautiful in thinking about like those, we're navigating those things in our Venusian story. We're navigating these two axes simultaneously, Mm -hmm. right? With Mars and also with Pluto. That's very cool. That's very cool to think about, uh, you know. And I have to mention this because we're talking about connecting to our bodies. Um, Taurus is often associated with the throat area of the body in medical astrology. And Scorpio is associated with the pelvic region. Nice. And there are many correspondences between those two pieces of our body. I mean, the most obvious, of course, is our mouth and our genitalia. And we're, you know, we're talking about love and eroticism, but also like the entryway into the gut and the exit of the gut. Yes. Right? Yes. Orifices. Yes. (laughs) Well, what about ears? It's kind of halfway between the throat and the crown. That's interesting. In general, um, the head is associated with Aries. Mm. Okay, that still works. But listening is complicated. You know, the ears are complicated because it also involves the mind. Yeah. And so that would be more Mercury. Yeah. When you talked about um, two axes, axes, um, Uh. I was thinking about... Um, in terms of the erotic sovereignty, you know what you like, you know what you don't like. Okay. And we're cultivating more opportunities to experience what we like while also reframing the experience of how we respond to that which we don't like. Interesting. I'm learning about a book. I'm reading a book called Existential Kink, which really does. Say um, more about that. Say more about the um, reframing. Reframing, exactly. Um, the 
concept around um, how we experience sensation, that things are sensualized to give us information for us to respond. And therefore, irregardless of the sensation, and this is putting completely out of context the horrors of the world. So if someone is in a war zone or if someone okay. is like, sure. completely taking that aside. Okay. And just kind of imagine that you're kind of living in a privileged world where your your needs are taken care of. Okay, got it. So the sensations that exist on a psychic intellectual level around what we like and don't like about our lives and reframing those as sensations that give us information that we can learn from, look at, experience, and reframe in a sensual okay. way. The, the, the thing that's the most important around that is the sensual way, that they're sensations and therefore part of the map to pleasure and the erotic and your own sovereign turn on. So could I be in a state of turn on and also be like really ashamed of myself? Absolutely. Okay. Because when you were talking about what do we want, what do we don't want, that's the very like Mars and Venus polarity. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But then when you started talking about the nuance of how do I kind of unravel where I'm going with this and mm. what am I unpacking around mm. why I have the boundaries I have, mm. right? Like mm -hmm. Scorpio is, and, and Pluto, like that's a why question usually. Nice. Right? Uh -huh. That's more the Venus. That's more the other axis of Venus and Pluto. Ooh. Right? So it's very possible that you could kind of just stay in the Mars-Venus dance and try to avoid this Venus-Pluto um, dance. But what's lost in that is a truer understanding of ourselves. And I'm going to go back to that definition ooh, again. Ooh. The physical, emotional, psychic expression of what's deepest, strongest, and richest. Mm -hmm. You know, when Venus goes through that underworld journey, she passes in the myth from being the queen of heaven to the queen of heaven and earth. She basically graduates. You know, she basically becomes like the more fuller expression of what her what she's going to be able to give to the world shows up. It's not just about getting from the world anymore. It's about what is she going to, what is she going to offer? Yes. And the richness of that particular myth and her journey through the sky, I think speaks so much to that, that how do we get out of that flatness? Yes. Right? Yes. And start to fill out some of the richness and the complexity that's been lost because we've been avoiding the shadow. We've been avoiding the shame. We've been avoiding what culture has told us is no man's land. There be dragons, right? Mm -hmm. And when we do that journey, like I was saying, like really early on, when we do that journey consciously, right? When we invite that in, 
oh my God, the universe shows up for us <laughs> ready with the curriculum that is the most loving curriculum to help us become that sacred sovereign. Yeah. I love that, uh, the, a loving curriculum. And that's the reframing, exactly that. You know, we are not um, victims of angry gods that do things to us. Um, and we're also not um, inherently flawed. That they're no way. Right? No. And to believe that, I think, is to stay in that collapsed story. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not a problem to be fixed. <laughs> that that presence that you talk about is kind of getting past that edgy hump of like, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? And if you're if you stay present for just a little bit longer and relax, there's nothing actually wrong with you when you're in full presence. Uh. Wow. Oh, and I feel that so deeply in my body that like, you know, my heart unfolds, my eyes are watery, my hips are looser, my whole being is breathing now. That's sensual joy too. Yeah. Well, Pluto is... Um... You know, we talked about what is Venus at the beginning. We didn't, we didn't, we haven't really talked a lot about Pluto, except you know, underworld and stuff. But Pluto is also power. Mm, interesting. Mm. Yes, Pluto is our relationship to power. And so, what I'm hearing when you share that is unlocking our power. Hmm. Connecting to our power. Yes, please. Right? I personally don't believe that a visit to the underworld is damnation. <laughs> no. Right? That the anonymous is about a woman going down to see her sister because of a death. Mm -hmm. It's a meeting of sisters. Mm. Right? It's... And it's, you know, and there's all this unfolding because as I was saying earlier, it's ordeals, it's drama, it's ordeals, it's, it's things that happen in the underworld that are out of our control, that are bigger than us. And yet that's where our power comes from, right? Yeah. It comes, I think, you know, it comes from maybe some of the courage we have to do that. Mm, love that word go, courage you know to go to those edges yes and then to find that we can meet them yes and 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 to come out on the other side of meeting them i mean that's when i personally feel the most powerful in my life absolutely um georgia o'keefe encapsulates it really well when she says that like for her as she grew older and she realized what her power was some people um, called her brave or some people called her bold. And she said that as she got older, the more she realized that um, the the boldness comes from knowing that you're held. Uh. 
Brave is to leap, not knowing where you'll land or how you'll land. But bold is knowing that you're held. Yes, that the underworld is actually a place of fertility. Mm. It's, it's the place from which things are born, the darkness, right? The universe came out of darkness. The mm. seed emerges from the dark soil. Mm. The, the human infant, you know, is moved from the dark womb into the world. I mean, mm. that's where the generation happens from. Mm. And a trust in that, a trust in where you came from. A trust in that origin, as dark and unknown as it is, that that's that is the that is the place from which new things emerge. And getting back to that storyline of creativity, right? Yeah, we can stay in that that Mars Venus dance, like yes, no, yes, no. And at some point, we need a regeneration. We need a restart. We need something wholly different because it's a time in our life where. What was working for us before just doesn't work anymore. Yeah. And that's just going to happen, right? For sure, for sure. Just like the caterpillar turns to goo before it reemerges as a butterfly. And I think that's really, you know, the beauty of, of, of having that sacred sovereignty is you can kind of move, move with that, evolve with that, right? Right. I mean, I feel like so much that's what Dan Savage tries to call people to. Yes. Yeah. It's Certain just to level. be real with, yes, just to be real with what's happening and the changes that are occurring and to like respect. And, you know, that's, that's that Venus Pluto work to respect that change is going to happen in our lives. Right. Dramas are going to ensue. And structures and repair. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And even if I think about, you know, going back to sexuality, there's not just our own waxing and waning desires. There's the cognizance that even within, you know, sexual arousal, there is like an aromantic, asexual, as much as yeah. there is, um, you know, the highly sexual and those are not hierarchical. Um, we need to like step away from kind of standardizing and, and expecting e each of our individual realities. And that's the, so the sovereignty is going, this is my expression of those things. Yes. And I, I love, I love that you've um, in the past been able to call me out on that. I appreciate that. Well, I, I want to invite, I want to call people in to something I didn't mention. I don't know that I would think of this as a practice, but it is a suggestion. And that is if folks don't know the Venus placement in their natal chart, to maybe go discover that because that could reveal a lot to you about what, what your needs are. Mm. And it's particularly if you're in a place where you're questioning that or you've lost clarity about it. Mm -hmm. And I think this happens a lot for women who've been socially conditioned to think about the needs of their partner 
mm-hmm. over there. rather than their mm-hmm. over their own personal needs. I mm-hmm. think it can be really empowering to do some discovery around what is the Venus in my natal chart telling me about my relationship to myself, to my own body, and to what I'm needing in relationships, and how that is informing my life. Can I be shamelessly selfish for a moment and use yeah. me, me as an example? <laughs> yeah, I think that'd be awesome if you did that. <laughs> oh, good. I know that my placement for Venus is an Aquarius. Yes. What, what, what do you think about that? Well, I think it's partly why we've been able to have the conversation that we've been able to have. Oh, cool. Frankly, Yes. Um, Aquarius is a play. <laughs> the mo- the moniker for Venus and Aquarius is free love. <laughs> it just is, you know. And of course, there's like a whole you know stereotype of what that means. But I mean, you can extrapolate that very widely. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's an appreciation for. The great diversity of life, the individuality and the uniqueness of all different aspects and all different things, right? It's it's a, it's a little, you know, uh, Aquarius is an air sign. So there, there is an intellectual component there of just being inspired and intrigued and curious, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the guardian of Aquarius is Uranus. So I think the element of surprise, the spontaneity, you know, the the being in the moment as we were talking about, you know, that's all part of what it means to be showing up for you in your deepest, richest, you know, sense of pleasure. Mm. Okay. I like it. I like it. Um, And I think that the prompt to have people find their Venus placement is so on point. I am seeing the talk of Venus everywhere. Maybe I'm looking for it. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I'm making my own. Um, You know, Hansel and Gretel trail through the woods that I'm like, yes, and this, and this, and this, but just really, really appreciative of this era of understanding our bodies and reframing how we think and feel about them and expect of them, um, how we're reframing uh, advocacy and activism being that of communal growth rather than individualistic growth. There are so many patterns like life-changing, really big, important patterns that I keep stumbling across. Um, Like I said, existential kink has been really big for me. Understanding stressed cycles like the Nagoski sisters are doing. Um, Understanding the wonders. We're finally really understanding women's health in a very different way. Um, Understanding what, how nuanced and complex the vagina is in such a different way. Um, the, the work 
on a local level for me, like within the Peach Palace, which is this like portal for creativity, expression. It's very Venusian. It's very divine feminine. Um, and the art shows that, I mean, this incredible woman, Emma Alexander, did a show and she she painted this like moonbow over this um, like oceanic basin. Uh, and it was like this exact really critical moment within this um, Venusian cycle. And she was painting Venus and she didn't even realize it. And the work that is happening within the Patreon account of Sonia Renee Taylor, uh, <sighs> I cannot express how important it is to fund a woman like that. <laughs> like, wow. even when I'm not like doing her syllabuses on time, the fact that I am funding a woman like that is so important to me. <laughs> mm, so we're back to we're back to resources with that. Yes, I, I didn't mention this about Venus and Aquarius, and I should. You know, Aquarius is also a sign of the collective group, uh, co collective humanity. Ah, uh, yeah. So have Venus in that place also tells me there's always care and concern for that. I love people. Yes. And I think for an ideal, like for a vision, for a a sense of shared humanity. Mm -hmm. Right? Right. <laughs> I have had to learn to not be as, as touchy as I was in my youth. <laughs> <laughs> Loving does not always equal touching. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Yes, reach out and touch everyone all the time. <laughs> Would pretty much be Venus and Aquarius. Why can't I touch people? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you found new ways to touch people. Yeah. You know, Aquarius also has some significations with technology. Ooh, really? Really. So that tells me also perhaps, and, and you can use that term broadly, mm -hmm. doesn't have to mean digital technology. It can just mean, you know, any, any attempt to sort of have an improvement, right? It's that Uranus thing again. It's any attempt to improve upon or innovate, right? These are things that you are mindful of, nice. interested in. Nice. So then I hear that. I hear that in your stories, you know, in the books that you're reading. Mm -hmm. Right? That's it. That's a pursuit that's based on wanting that kind of inspiration to come in and inform some new possibility indeed yep another thing literally literally well there you have it folks if any of you have your um venus and aquarius there you go <laughs> a cornucopia oh it's delicious i mean i'm gonna do that like all important thing as host to ask you if there's anything that you really wanted to um, touch on that we haven't. I want to touch very briefly. I just want to say that when we were talking about Venus and Pluto, it's very likely that people have been noticing 
in the last year some of these themes because Pluto Mm -hmm. has been dancing with Venus in a really unique way. I would Mm -hmm. say particularly around the eclipses and those will continue into this year. You might continue to see these themes. Um, So I would just, you know, want to be aware of that. Um, And I feel like if I haven't said this plainly yet, I want to plainly say that disembodiment efforts to separate us from our own bodily experiences is politically strategic. And we we have a unique opportunity based on what is unfolding in the co- cosmos to unravel some of our stories with that right now and to bring more consciousness into our journey, specifically Right now, I I mentioned Venus is becoming an evening star and she's in this latter part of the journey um, that began last year. So think about my my suggestion would be to reflect on and not even just mentally, even just physically connect with yourself and what, what you've experienced over the last year and begin to imagine what you might manifest in this coming year. Um particularly around how you are feeling your own connection to dismantling um, internalized oppression, as we've talked about, and becoming more responsible for uh, what I refer to as just right relationship with others and with our communities that we are a part of, that we are connected to, um, that are a part of us. I think that's really the invitation. So I do want to mention just kind of the timing of where we're at right now. And um, I know that this, uh, you're probably going to, if you listen to this podcast when it's released, uh, Venus will be moving into Pisces around the same time of the new moon in Pisces. And within uh, Pisces, Venus is considered to be exalted. So this period of time, um, until about the 20th of February uh, would be a really rich time, I think, to explore some of the themes that we've discussed and um, find your own feeling of flow and of... And maybe just to dream up, to just dream up what you think might be... um, possible for you as a sacred sovereign and to really soak it in and just you know Pisces is very oceanic sign so take baths and immerse yourself in music and Connect Go for a with sound the, bath. <laughs> yeah, connect with the feeling of that one wit at oneness with all things. Mm. Right? Like that's really the invitation. And from that place is where we kind of dream up this this new chapter that we're moving forward in individually and collectively. Right. Mm. And in presence and solidarity with you on this wonderful podcast. Thank you for being part of this. 
Oh, thank you for having me. Um, it's been a real treat. Mm. I know there's been a lot here that's been shared. And so I guess a final note would just be to trust, um, trust, trust what you're taking away and right. don't overthink what didn't fully land. Yeah. Don't work too hard. Yeah. You don't have to grind at this. You can yeah. let it seep in like water into soil. <laughs> Thank you so much, Rudo. <laughs> I will put some Diana P. Cartwright uh, Substack articles for y'all to experience as well. Please subscribe to that. It's a wonderful platform. I love Substack and especially your uh, writing. It's beautiful. Um, and as always, just so grateful to be able to sit and delve with you. I love you. And I love you, dear listener. Thank you so much for your dedicated presence during this time. <laughs> so much love to everyone listening. Mm. Okay. See you next week. Thank you.